Um, I want to have a discussion with you this morning. I say discussion because I don't do well with sermons. I don't think I've ever given one. I'm not sure that this would be one either. But a discussion would imply that you and I are going to be in conversation with each other, or at least that you would be in conversation with each other. As you came in here this morning, I hope you were able to grab a little half sheet of paper that had a couple question prompts on it. And I am, um, I'm going to start there as I get my tech things in order. Two questions. I'm going to start with question one. Please feel free to write to whatever you feel um, is uh, appropriate for you. And if you didn't grab one of those pieces of paper, you'd rather just use your phone, you'll see the uh, questions up on the screen. If you're joining us via the live stream, you'll see them up there as well. Question number one is, can you recall your earliest memory of singing? Your earliest memory of singing? And if so, how did it make you feel? For many of us, we were this big. But your earliest memory of singing. And then what does that memory bring up in you? How do, how do you recall that moment? And as you're writing that one, I'll put the second question up as well, which is this. What do you experience during congregational singing? Or maybe another way to say that is what do you currently experience? I think about 15 minutes ago we were just doing it, so it should be a little easier to jog your memory of how you feel about it. So question number one, can you recall your earliest memory of singing? And then question number two is, what do you experience during congregational singing? And as you're finishing up writing, here's what I would like us to do. Near people that you are seated close to, in groups of, let's say, four to six, maybe eight, let's not get huge groups of people going on, I would love for you to share your responses with those people around you to the, whatever level you feel comfortable. Okay, but before you start... Before you start, make sure you do a quick look over each shoulder to make sure there isn't somebody seated near you without a group. We do want to make sure that everyone feels included in this conversation. And so just give yourself a quick glance. And if you're joining us on the live stream, use that comment section to answer those to the level that you feel comfortable. Let's take a couple minutes and do this and just share amongst your group your responses to these two questions. I hate to interrupt because I'm hearing really, really good conversation, but that clock keeps ticking and I know that we've got more to get to. But as you're thinking about this and sharing, I hope that you've had an opportunity to hear not only uh, the experience of your own experience, but hearing the experience of others. You see, all of us have history with this action of singing. We all have an earliest memory. I'll share with you mine. I'm in the car with my grandfather driving uh, on up the highway up to Monroe from Redmond. We're going to Evergreen Speedway to watch the race cars. And we are listening to Ray Stevens. Anybody know who Ray Stevens is? Yeah, of course. And the song is called The Mississippi Squirrel Revival. Do you know the song? Oh, goodness. Uh, here's the deal. I'm not going to sing it. But uh, Google it at some point in your life if you'd like to have a five-minute just absolute laughing fest. It's a phenomenal piece of music, but it's ingrained in me. I started singing it at an age where I couldn't even, I didn't know what the words were. I think I was just making up sounds, but trying to track the melody. My memory of that is so vivid, though, because of the way I felt while I did it. I felt safe. I felt like I was having a good time. I was laughing with my grandfather, somebody that I loved to be around, and singing, which became something that I loved to do. My earliest memory was a joyful memory. Not long after that, in elementary school, I had uh, uh, somebody tell me one time as I was singing in line to hand in my homework, 
before we go into recess. Fifth grade, Jared's up there, and I'm uh, completely unaware of anybody else around me. And I'm singing what at that point in time was my favorite song. Backstreet Boys, I want it that way. <laughs> I understand you may not love that song. I really enjoyed the song. And I had somebody say to me, why are you singing that song? That song is dumb. This is the most popular boy in school. And I was devastated. I, have an, uh, I imagine that as you've answered these questions, some of you on that second question, and when we talked about congregational singing, you might be uh, in the camp of people who feel a little bit self-conscious. Maybe the people that feel a little bit fearful or, or the people that do it just kind of out, out of obligation because you may not feel like you're a confident singer. And that's okay because somebody in your life probably told you that you weren't a very good singer or that you shouldn't sing or that you should stop singing. And that my friends, I'm going to tell you, was one of the worst lies that was ever told to you. And I mean that sincerely. I'm going to take us through a couple of points here, and I, I hope to not take too much time here. But I call these the three C's of singing. And f with full disclosure, this comes out of a book that I did not write. Uh, this comes out of a book. Uh, the book is called Sing, with a big giant exclamation point on the end of it. And it's written by... Uh, uh, Keith and Kristen Getty, who are hymn writers from Ireland, um, you may or may not recognize the name. We do a lot of their songs here. We do In Christ Alone, which I know is a favorite for many of you. That is Keith and Kristen Getty. And they wrote this book as uh, a way to help individuals, families, and churches learn how to sing more, better as a spiritual practice. And this is right out of the first chapter, the three C's of singing. Number one is that we were created to sing. We were created to sing. Now, um, we can talk a little bit about the physiological component of this, of just how we were designed. But more than this, it has to do with what happens to our brains when we engage in singing. Before we get into that, I want to show you one of my favorite pieces of scripture. This is Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. And this is where I think we start to see the foundations of why we were created to sing. It says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Here's the line that I think gives us a sign of us being singers. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. If we fast forward up to verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And our response, I praise you. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Do me a favor, friends. Read that with me one time. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. We are all singers. Which begs the question, well, Jared, well, I don't feel like I'm a very good singer. What do you mean? Maybe you find that, you, that, that some of us in this room are in this camp of, uh, well, when I go to sing, I, I want to participate, but the sound that comes out is not what I desire it to be. Anybody feel it? No, you don't have to raise your hand, but I understand, right? I've been there. I, I, I get it. Well, the good news is that God cares significantly more 
I might even say entirely more about your heart than he does about your vocal talent. And then the second thing is this, singing is a practice. In the same way that reading is a practice, in the same way that prayer is a practice. And if you stop singing in fifth grade elementary school music class and you didn't take a single music class after that, it would make sense that you might be out of practice a little bit in this thing called singing. If I stopped reading in fifth grade, I would likely not be very good at it now. If I stopped doing math in fifth grade, I would likely not be very good at it now. And so be gracious with yourself, but understand that as a part of the life of a Christian, as a part of a disciple of Christ, singing is a big part of what we should be doing in our spiritual practices, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Truth time? Okay, here it comes. I do not like to read out loud in front of people at all because I'm not very good at it. I find that I trip over my words. I become embarrassed. I feel like if I do that, you're not going to look at me the same way. And I put myself on this pedestal of it's either perfection or nothing. And I imagine that there are some of us in this room that approach singing that way. We approach prayer that way. Oh, I don't want to pray because I don't want to pray the wrong thing. What if, what if we could have this posture? If I add my voice to the room, the only possible outcome is value added to the entire room. What that would mean is that you would give up self-consciousness. You would give up the fear. You would lean into the discomfort. I would lean into reading words on a page in front of people because that discomfort helps me grow. Friends, we were created to sing. And if you think you're not a good singer, that just means you're out of practice. It's not that you're a bad singer. And so my encouragement to you is to sing more. It doesn't mean you have to be loud. It doesn't mean you have to be big and loud and demonstrative about it. It just means that you need to participate in it with a group of people around you. Here's uh, a little fun fact for you. When a human being, regardless of socioeconomic status, religion, race, anything. When a human being engages in full-voiced, unashamed singing with a group of people participating in the same exact way, your brain releases endorphins at a level beyond anything else that you do in this world. That's not hyperbole. That's, that's a fact. Serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin flood your brain, and you get overwhelmed with a sense of well-being, sense of belonging, sense of joy. But that only happens if you're willing to push fear and self-consciousness away. You see, you can't hold on to those things. And those things are honestly crutches that we hold on to to maintain some level of control. So I want to encourage you, friends, to not do that as we get more, uh, as we begin to worship more later in the service. Understand that you were created to do this. God gave us a wonderful gift in singing, and it's a part of our spiritual lives. So part one, we're created to sing. Part two, we're commanded to sing. In fact, there are over 400 references to singing in the Bible and more than 50 direct commandments to do so. So I'll just take a look at one here. This is Psalm 149. It says, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of his faithful people. Hey, look at you, assembly of his faithful people. That's us right here, right now. 
And it says, sing to the Lord a new song. Notice that it doesn't say, sing to the Lord if your voice is good enough. Notice that it doesn't say, sing to the Lord if you feel comfortable enough to do it. It says, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of his faithful people. That is us. We are in an assembly of faithful people. That is church, friends. We are commanded to do this. And beyond this, we look at the life of Jesus. Jesus is this amazing person who uh, we kind of try to aspire to be like. We try to look at his life and try to figure out a way for us to be drawing closer to him, to be living more like him. And though unobtainable, we do try to posture ourselves in that direction at least. So the question becomes, well, did, did Jesus sing? The answer is yes. Jesus sang. I'll give you a couple examples. One of my favorite ones comes directly after communion. So we, we get into this part of, of, of Matthew where we kind of stop a verse short, I feel like, of one of the more important elements. So let me give this. This is directly after Jesus has broken the bread and taken the cup. And he says this in Matthew 26, starting in verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay, so that's where the statement kind of ends. That's the end of Jesus' speaking and dialogue. But the verse after this, I think, is really important. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they ate together, and then they were going to go to the Mount of Olives, but before they left, they had to sing. Nope, we got to start. We got to sing first. Definitely got to sing first before we go do that. And I think this is a beautiful image because it's not something that we should glance past or look past too quickly. They were intentional about what they were doing. They ate, they sang, and then they went. And so um, as we look at this, uh, Jesus in particular, there's, there's, another, there's another part of Scripture where he is at least alluding to song, and it's one of the most important parts of our entire gospel story. We pick this up a chapter later in Matthew 27, verse 20, excuse me, verse 46. Jesus on the cross says, at about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma, sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Picture where Jesus is in this moment. He's dying, and he's crying out, but he's actually referencing a piece of scripture that he likely had learned as a child. Does anybody know this reference? I'll show it to you anyway. This comes from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? You see, Jesus was referring to a psalm or a song even in his moments of dying. And notice that his tone is not happy. You see, when we sing, friends, it's not just about doing it because it's going to make us feel better. That's a wonderful benefit of it. But sometimes our singing needs to be singing out in sadness, singing out in anger, singing out in frustration. It's not just something that we rally around because it's going to make us happy. And our example of that is Jesus on the cross. Okay, I know that's kind of heavy. Just take a minute, take a breath. 
first two ones, created to sing, commanded to sing. And then the last one, which is arguably my favorite, which is that we are compelled to sing. I love this word, compelled. Compelled implies there's almost an involuntary reflex. Um, and by that, I mean, um, I'm sorry, parents. I'm, I'm likely going to open up something here that you're not going to love entirely. But let's just pretend, for example, you were going to tell a young child that they were going to go to Disneyland for their birthday. And if you did that, that child's response would likely not be, wow, thanks, dad. And then they walk away. No, if you tell them this, they are going to drop everything. They're going to jump up and down. They're going to start screaming and shouting and have unrestrained joy that overcomes them. They will be compelled to respond. Well, we have been given good news, too. In fact, um, when we look at, at the gospel story, oftentimes this has been referred to as the good news. But when we look at the gospel story, we are we should be compelled to respond in a certain way. You see, I believe that worship is a response to revelation. And what greater revelation is there in history than the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so we look at scripture then being this place that's full of salvation songs. If the gospel is our truth about salvation, then scripture is actually littered with them all over the place. The very first song recorded in all of history in the Bible, Exodus. How about this song? Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. I bet you Hillsong is not doing this song. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Come on, there's no way. But this is a song that they sang. Both horse and driver, he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then I love this line. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. This is the first song documented. This is our first seeing that, that singing is a part of the lives of those who follow Christ, that follow God. There are other examples of this uh, throughout Scripture as well. We see uh, songs of battle in the book of Judges. We see the songs of David all throughout the Psalms, which you can find a psalm that will fit any season of life if you look through them intentionally enough. But one of my favorite songs in the whole Bible is the song of the prisoners. Acts 16, Paul and Silas. Are you familiar with this story? Where they're in prison. Let me give you the kind of the spark notes version of this as we get caught up into the scripture here. Paul and Silas are going to a place of prayer where they're met by a woman who was a slave and she had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She follows Paul and Silas for days, not minutes, not hours, but days. And she shouts the entire time, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she says it over and over and over and over. And over again for days, not minutes, not hours, but days. So Paul, as you might imagine, gets so annoyed, he finally says, turns around and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her, saying this to the spirit living in her. The spirit leaves her. But then the problem occurs, which is that her owners, the slave owners, uh, realize that they're no longer going to make any money with her being a fortune teller. And so they seize Paul and Silas. They make him face authorities in town. They get stripped of their clothes, beaten with rods, and ultimately thrown into prison with their ankles hand, uh, uh, cuffed to the ground. Uh, 
there's some imagery here that is kind of hard to absorb. Beaten with rods, stripped of their clothes, cuffed to the ground, their, their ankles cuffed to the ground. You might say they are in a bit of an uncomfortable situation. You might say that they were going through a trial in that moment. You might say that they were facing something that was horrific and terrible. But their response to this is one of the most amazing pieces of of Scripture that I have found. They didn't yell. They didn't get mad. They didn't get angry. They weren't demonstrative. They weren't shouting. They sat and they sang and they prayed. In fact, in verse 25, at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Wouldn't it be kind of cool if the walls just blew off this place just for fun? I mean, not really. That would be a disaster. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, in general, they are singing, they are praying. The people, the the other prisoners in jail are listening to them and then God intervenes. He blows the walls off the place which is actually a pretty amazing story on its own, but that's not where the story ends, my friends. It goes on. It says, The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? You see, their singing and their praying was not just for themselves, but it was a witness for others. Our singing benefits us greatly. Sure, with the the brain chemistry, that's a part of it. Sure, in the spiritual practice, that's another. But your singing also bears witness to Jesus. The way that you sing matters. Not in terms of your talent, but the posture of your heart. They were beaten, bloodied, broken on the ground, and then they decided to sing. I'm going to be honest. For those of you that have been here for the last couple of weeks, we've felt some of this un- discomfort. We have felt some of this sadness. We have felt some of this uncertainty. And our response matters here. And I don't know any other way but then to look at this story and say, okay, Lord, we're going to sing and we're going to pray. And I know that for some of us in this room, singing is an uncomfortable practice. I, I get it. I do. But it's a part of what we should be doing. And so my ask of you, my ask of you is to find a way to participate in it, even if it's just 1% more than what you've done to this point. As we move forward, I have a couple more questions for you. If you flip your paper over, you'll see them. You're going to get in your groups of people again just for the time being. But these questions are a little more, I don't want to say they're heavy, but they've got a little more substance to them. So here's one question. What spiritual practices in your own life might help you connect congregational singing 
as a response to freedom in Christ. It's a lot there to chew on. What spiritual practices in your own life might help you connect congregational singing as a response to freedom in Christ? And then as you are writing, this next question you may or may not have an answer for, and that's okay. What psalm or other scripture passage resonates with you as your song of salvation? I'll share with you mine. I did it earlier. It's Psalm 139. I know that I was knit in my mother's womb by a God who loved me graciously. I was fearfully and wonderfully made. That one's enough for me. But what is the piece of scripture that you attach yourself to as your song of salvation? As you're writing these things, I recognize that these ones might be a little bit more personal than the first two questions. But I do want to encourage you to share them to the level that you feel comfortable anyway, with the same group of people that were around you. And we're going to do this for a couple minutes. And then um, by way of response this morning, for the rest of our time together, we're going to sing. And we're going to pray. Okay, so I want you to spend a couple minutes together in your groups, share these. Yes, Dan. An example for number three might be, um, I am going to, when I get in my car to leave church today, I'm going to look up that song that I didn't know that we sang at church and learn it before next week. That might be, that's just one example. Um, another example might be, I will, Okay, I, I'll, I'll, I'll put singing as a practice. I'll do it when I'm in my car alone so no one can hear me. But that's progress. I will do it in the shower when I know no one else is home. Good, do it. The more minutes you spend practicing anything, the more comfortable it's going to become for you. And if you are like many of the people I imagine in this room who have been out of practice in your musical lives, in your singing lives, then stepping into it is uncomfortable, but sing anyway. Okay? Get in your groups just for a couple minutes, and then we'll, we'll conclude our time together with some song. <laughs>